Namaste and welcome um, to everyone. Uh, we've been getting a lot of questions that have uh, been coming in and quite a few of them are um, similar or alike. And so we're going to be doing this um, additional part to the series so that uh, we can attempt to answer some of your questions. Before speaking, I would like to offer my um, humble respects to my spiritual teachers and to our lineage, to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and to the Supreme Lord. Namaum Vishnu Padaya Krishna Pristaya Bhutale Sri Mate Siddhas Vurupananda Paramahamsa Itinamine Namaste Saraswati Devi Govani Pracharine Nirvishesha Sanyavadi Vastatya Dishatarane Bajasri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Adwaita Gadadhar Sri Vasadi Gaur Bhaktivindam He Krishna Kauruna Sindhu Dinabandhu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kantaradha Kantanamostate Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. So, um, the first question I got, actually a lot of people asked this question, and it came um, after the talk on salvation versus love. And it's basically the question is, am I saying that it's not really enough to just be saved, if I can put it that way. And there's a number of different ways that I could answer this question. It brings up different um, philosophical points or spiritual points, but the main one that I would actually like to make um, for you now is that To be saved or liberated does not address my need to love and to be loved. This is such a um, strong pull that even if a great yogi was to attain Brahman realization and to merge into this ocean of spiritual effulgence, this aspect, the impersonal aspect of God, it is stated that a person can still, after what is almost like an infinity, a long period of time, again fall from that situation and the reason it happens is because we are, we have a need for activity by nature. The living being, the spirit soul, the atma is active and it desires to love and to be loved. 
So to be saved from a suffering condition, while is very nice, it does not address this need I have for love to engage in an active, loving relationship eternally. So another one that came up uh, quite, quite a number of times talking about God in the way we've talked about God, the question is, is the path of bhakti yoga a religion? And of course, my response is, well, what do most people think of as religion? We have to sort of agree on the term here. When people speak about religion in this way, they are generally talking about a religious faith. A religious faith is quite often something that people through culture or family connections or whatever are exposed to or born into or brought up in. And there are certain dogmas attached to it. And I'm not saying that in a negative way at all. There are certain beliefs that a person is asked to accept. And there is an element of, of blind faith or, or just blindly accepting something. If someone blindly, blindly accepts, it doesn't mean that what they're accepting is necessarily wrong, but this is not the foundation for a proper or mature spiritual relationship. So, if you ask me whether bhakti yoga is a form of religion, my answer is no, but I can also say yes if we are talking about the eternal nature of the soul itself, the sanatan dharma. There is a common thread amongst most religions. One is a love for for God, an expression or a desire to develop in some way or in some form love for God and service to all others. So these are eternal spiritual or religious principles and they point to the, um, they point to what we can call true religion. So if we are speaking about that, yes, we can say that bhakti yoga is possibly could be considered religion, but actually it is from the point of view of the spiritual practitioner, it is not um, like religion as it is often practiced in this world. So leads on to another question, this one from um, came from California. There are many religions claiming their God is God. Could you please kindly expound on this? The spiritual understanding should be that there is only one absolute truth. There is only one higher spiritual truth. In that sense, there is only one God 
and this one God makes himself available to different peoples at different times in different ways. When people do not have, and I don't say this in a demeaning way, when they do not have a mature understanding or a very developed spiritual faith, they want to make distinctions between one type of, of um, religion or understanding of God and another. Whereas from the Vedic perspective, the true transcendentalists, they didn't have this kind of divisive view. They accepted that the absolute truth is one and is available or recognizable or approachable in different ways by different people in different time, place and circumstance. Another one that came up quite a lot was in relation to, I had used the term names of God when I was speaking about transcendental sound or these spiritual mantras that are comprised of this transcendental sound, which is also um, names of the highest truth or names of God. So the question is, um, in speaking of these names of God, is Allah or Jehovah a name of God? And without hesitation, the answer is, of course, yes. The transcendentalists understand that there are unlimited names of God, each of them often describing a unique characteristic or quality of this highest truth. And so when we understand from this perspective, then we do not look upon um, God or things related or connected to him from a sectarian point of view. This is an unfortunate and limited perspective. So all names of God, if they are actual names of God, are considered transcendental and have this a unique and special spiritual or transcendental potency. Another question was um, in relation to one's daily life. The question was more or less, um, how do you balance these spiritual and material aspects of life while wanting to become a steady practitioner of bhakti yoga? In most, not all, but most of the yoga processes and even with conventional religion, there is this con conception or this idea that I have a spiritual life and I can also have a material life. So I allocate a certain amount of time um, with my, for my spiritual activities. And then the 
majority of my time though is, is very much absorbed in duties and responsibilities related to this life, maintaining the body, family matters and everything else. Uh, certain types of yoga saw this as being um, something that needed to be renounced or given up. But the true spiritual perspective is that it is not a question of, if we, uh, if we ask the question, what is material and what is spiritual? It is only determined by my consciousness. If I understand it, all material energy is an energy of the absolute. If I understand that all living beings are also the energy of the absolute, then if I see the living beings and this world as being separate from God or separate from the highest spiritual truth, this is not a good way of looking at things. And the process of, of bhakti yoga is not about <clears throat> oh, I'm going to live a materialistic life and be absorbed in, in, in materialistic living. Then I try to allocate some portion of my life to purify me from that. It's kind of like what happens sometimes um, in, in conventional religion where people are drawn to the world. They engage in activity that becomes classified or is considered sinful. And then they feel bad and they go to confess to God and ask to be forgiven. They pray for forgiveness, they repent, and then they go back and do the same thing again. For one who is really aspiring to practice um, bhakti, one should be endeavoring to connect every part of your life and to make all of your life, all of your actions, everything is performed as an offering, an offering to the absolute truth, an offering to God, the personality of Godhead, Bhagavan or Krishna. When one does this, their life becomes spiritualized. And it's just like the example that we sometimes give you take iron, an iron rod is by nature cold, it is hard, it has certain qualities. Once I put it in a fire, and the fire is really hot, I've got a blower on it, eventually it becomes red hot and then becomes white hot. When I take it out of the fire, it is emitting light, it is emitting heat, and if I touch it to anything which is flammable, it will burst into flames. So now it is no longer behaving just like iron. It has taken on the quality of fire. So in a very similar manner, when one learns to dovetail their life and all of your undertakings to perform it in a mood of, of um, a humble offering and endeavor to become pleasing to God, then one's life becomes not only purified, it becomes purifying. When you engage in these activities and they're done as an offering, 
and one becomes purified by them. So we are encouraged not to be thinking of things, oh, this is part of my material life and then this is part of my spiritual life. No, it should be a, a question of how do I connect my entire existence, everything, with God. So um, <clears throat> had an interesting um, question here um, from Canada, from Michael, and he states that coming from a Christian background, I was always attracted to the simplicity and the directness of Jesus' first and foremost commandment to love God with your entire mind, heart, and being. I understand that the goal of bhakti is to help me cultivate my love for God. But how do I achieve this on a practical level? So this is one of the points, of course, that we discussed um, in, in a couple of different places in these series of talks. What needs to be done is we need to be purified of this contaminating consciousness that we are all somewhat immersed in, the desire to be the center of things. You see a group of people get together, there's often a competition, somebody is wanting to be the most beautiful or the most attractive there. Somebody else is really intelligent and they're displaying their intelligence in order to attract the attention of others. Someone else wants to be the funniest. Someone else wants to be the dorkiest. <clears throat> so, I mean, even these extremes, you know, these bizarre um, culture that has taken over with extreme sports where people engage in activity that causes great physical harm and everybody thinks it's like hilarious. Everything that people are doing in, in, this, um, in this way, it, it is part of my desire to be at the center of things, to be the central enjoying agent in my life, to be, um, to achieve, to uh, this, we see it with athletes and different people, you know, we're number one. Now, I'm sorry, you're not. You may be number one of a small group, but from a much bigger perspective, you are, are not number one. So this self-centeredness, and this I say this in the broadest possible way, this desire to be self-centered, the desire to see this world as being not the property of God, wanting to lay claim, to acquire, to pull it close to me so I can try and, and enjoy and be happy. All of these things and this type of consciousness that's associated with it make it so that I am separated from the Lord who is within my own heart. This process that is recommended in this time and age, the process of engaging specifically in this meditation upon the 
spiritual sound, the transcendental sounds, particularly when it is done in, as a group, it has the effect of purifying my heart and mind and making it so that which is most natural for me, which already exists within my heart of hearts, can now manifest. So it is not a question of learning how to do it. It's engaging in a process where it can happen. I had a really wonderful um, friend in the Philippines. I met, um, I was assisting her cousin who was dying of cancer and helping her prepare for that eventuality and um, how one should face this end of life, which we must all face. She was a um, Catholic nun. She was the um, actually head of a, a religious order in the Philippines. And she began attending these classes and engaging in this meditation process. And she developed an incredibly mature and wonderful understanding and appreciation, which was, of course, she understood that Lord Jesus Christ, whom she worshipped and followed, had instructed that one should come to this platform of perfect love for God, this love that is so deep and profound, one's entire existence is lost in this wonderful ocean of love. And she said she had spent over 60 years helping others and realized that she had not done enough to make it so that she herself could come to fulfill this request of Lord Jesus Christ. And she found that along with all of her other practices, the addition of the process of chanting of these spiritual sounds, these transcendental sounds and mantras, accepting that they were also names of God, made it so that there was transformation um, occurring in her life. So this is the foundational activity, the most important activity that one needs to do to come to the platform of love for God. So um, there was another, another um, question that um, is a little on the serious side. Um, somebody had written in, I've had some bad experiences with organized religion. And on top of that, in the news, we're always hearing about extremists, whether they're terrorists or cult leaders, or we hear about sexual abuse and so on. And you've also mentioned people that teach a sort of pseudo-bhakti. It's really hard to trust anyone. What is the need or requirement for having a guru on the path of bhakti? And how do I find someone that I can actually trust that isn't going to use or exploit me? Isn't it safer to go it alone?
Well, firstly, in, in, in life and in this world, if you want to acquire some ability uh, or a skill, rather, or certain to, to become, to develop a certain, in a field of knowledge or science, what, what you do, what do people do? You approach someone that is already an expert in that field and you begin to study underneath them. And by being able to leverage or take advantage of their personal experiences which they share and which they teach, one is able to grow in leaps and bounds um, on this endeavor or this path that they are undertaking. So this is, this is normal. This is the way everything happens in life. And in spiritual life or spiritual undertaking, it's no different. I agree that we are challenged. I agree with that fact. But it is not an impossibility. Yes, there are many people that will um, mislead. There are many people that want so badly to teach you and to guide you. Um, from a spiritual point of view. But the Vedas are very wonderful in that they lay out um, in quite some detail what are the characteristics and the traits and the qualities of such a um, transcendentalist. And it is important to learn about that that becomes a safeguard, but there is an additional safeguard. We understand from the Vedic perspective that the Lord resides within our own heart and residing within our own heart is capable and does offer guidance and direction. One is encouraged to actually reflect deeply within their heart and to ask this question, can I trust this person? Is this person actually a representative of the Supreme, of the Absolute Truth of God? Or is this person partially qualified? Or should I be a little worried or concerned about this person? When someone asks this question, you are able to experience from within your own heart an answer to that question. Um, my, uh, one of my spiritual masters, um, Jagat Guru Rupananda, he one time spoke about something that was quite, quite amazing. There was a woman that had been um, associating with some of his students and, and uh, those that were learning and studying under him. And she wrote him a letter to the effect, this just in summary, that I very much want to have someone to guide me and direct me in my life. I look at the, your students that I'm associating with and they seem to have very deep faith in you. And 
I am praying to God that he will also give me such faith. And um, Jagat Guru's response was that this was the perfect example of how not to pray. That if you ask the direction of God, the Lord within your own heart, to please give me faith in this person, to see them as your representative, if that's what you want, that's what you will get. But that is very dangerous. One should instead be asking, can I actually trust this person? Is this person actually your representative? That is how one should question and seek um, the direction of the Lord within one's own heart. So it is understandable that given everything that's going on in the world, that there's going to be lots of disappointment. Um, my initiating spiritual master, Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, would speak about the cheaters and the cheated. He says you get many people who become cheated because they are willing to accept a cheater. They, they go somewhat hand in hand. It is good to be a little skeptical. It is healthy to be very cautious about something as important as your own heart, something that is very tender um, to just give your heart or to open your heart to someone is something we should be extremely cautious about and extremely careful. So one is not required at all on this path to have any blind faith. One is encouraged to be quite critical, to analyze, to think critically, and to question um, critically with a desire to know what is this highest truth. So um, I think I was got a, quite a few more questions, but we're sort of running out of, of time here. Um, someone has asked, or a number of people have asked, um, basically that there are many bhakti yoga uh, classes or courses that are, seem to be available somewhere near where they are and online and how do I know which one to choose? We are not in the business of telling you who to follow or not follow. That is the job of the Lord within your own heart. And what we can help and share with you is the information to make it so that you can make choices. The choices, the decisions that you make have to be your own, but they need to be um, enlightened choices. So what I can encourage you is to um, maybe listen to more of the 
different lectures and read the material that's available um, on the websites at the Science of Identity Foundation um, and SIF and build your own um, become more aware of what are the criteria for making such decisions. So I hope that's been um, helpful to everyone, um, particularly those of you um, that are viewing online and have sent questions in and um, look forward to uh, doing further structured learning for people uh, in, in the future as we go forward. So thank you very much and I'd like to invite you to um, join with me in uh, this kirtan meditation. We'll be chanting the um, Maha Mantra and uh, please do join.
Hari 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 Krishna Hari Krishna Krishna 